Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to the podcast. We have a special book theme episode for you. First off, I'm chatting with John Englander, president of the Rising Seas Institute, about his new book, Moving to Higher Ground, Rising Sea Level and the Path Forward. Then Dr. Carolyn Kuski from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania joins me to discuss a new book she co-edited, A Blueprint for Coastal Adaptation. You'll get a sample of what's in the book and some of the backstory on why they were inspired to write these books. Both books are very timely in what's going on with adaptation planning and the federal government. Definitely take a look at the show notes for links directly to those books. Okay, upcoming episodes. It is a full slate headed into the summer. I'm hosting previous guests, Dr. Linda Shai from Cornell University and Dr. Suzanne Moser, and we're going to discuss a new paper they published in the journal Science, Transformative Climate Adaptation in the United States, Trends and Prospects. Two of the leading thinkers in the adaptation space, I am very excited to share this conversation with you. Also, I'll be doing an episode with the conservation group, the Sky Island Alliance, based here in Arizona. They took me to the U.S.-Mexican border recently to learn what the border wall construction's impact is having on wildlife corridors. That was an eye-opening adventure, literally touching the infamous border wall. We'll also learn some of the long-term impacts of climate change on the beautiful and unique Sky Island ecosystem. And before we get started, I want to tell you about another great sustainability podcast. How do you deal with all the bad news about climate change and humanity's sustainability crisis? Well, you could cry incessantly or pretend there's no problem, but that's not nearly as fun or useful as listening to the Crazy Town podcast. Each episode of Crazy Town challenges the status quo and makes you think differently about how we could live on planet Earth. In Crazy Town, you'll feel like you're hanging out with smart and funny friends, gaining insights and sharing laughs. Follow Crazy Town wherever you get your podcasts. Crazy Town is part of the Post Carbon Institute Podcast Network. The Institute is a nonprofit organization leading the transition to a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable world. To hear a sample directly from the host, stick around until the end of this episode to hear the trailer. Okay, adapters, let's hear about two new great adaptation books with John Englander and Dr. Carolyn Kuski. Hey, adapters, welcome back. Today, I'm talking with John Englander. John is president of the Rising Seas Institute and the author of a newly published book, which we're here to talk about, Moving to Higher Ground, Rising Sea Level, and the Path Forward. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. All right, John, you are a legend in the sea level rise space, and so I'm just thrilled to have you on. We've chatted in a couple other venues before, but we're here to talk about your book, but just maybe a little background. What's the Rising Seas Institute? It's a, a fairly young nonprofit think tank and policy center to help people do, do three things, really, to understand the realistic range of what could happen with sea level rise and get beyond the normal scientific protocols and kind of interpret what's happening. Two is to put it in language that professionals like engineers and architects and bankers and attorneys can process, whereas the, uh, the the glaciologists perhaps don't give them that information. And then three is encourage a practical focus. We need to change our building codes and our concepts of zoning, looking out decade by decade over this century. So those are the three things we try and encourage and educate about. So I'd mentioned you are a legend in the space. You've been doing sea level rise a lot longer than most people. But you had, let's get a little bit of your background first before we jump into the book. What Could you tell us a little bit about your path that got you into doing this type of work? It was almost accidental. Back in college, four or five decades ago, a long time ago, 
I was interested in marine geology, which was uh, back then at my college, Dickinson College in Pennsylvania, the closest thing we had to oceanography. But the ice ages really got my interest, how sea level went up and down 400 feet with each ice age and the pattern of the ice ages. But I also worked summers in the Bahamas as a scuba diving instructor. And kind of by serendipity, I found what was an ancient shoreline 200 feet underwater. And when I took that information and photographs back to my professor in Pennsylvania, he said, wow, that's when sea level was down that far. You know, and we kind of dated some samples and things like that. So I that really was the basis of my awareness that sea level moved up and down hundreds of feet by nature. Then fast forward about 30 years, I was kind of on the lookout for or trying to understand climate change better. And I had a meeting with Jacques Cousteau, who some of your listeners may remember was kind of the pioneer of ocean uh, TV and so on. And uh, Jacques, who died in 97, but he and I had some meetings that year. It allowed me to get a much bigger perspective of the world and climate change was on the table. And I hadn't fully thought through the sea level equation yet, but that became the turning point. And 10 years later, I was in Greenland and one thing led to another. And I just decided that telling the story of sea level rise was what I was going to do. Okay. I, I don't care how young you are. You better have heard of Jack Cousteau. So <laughs> obviously a legend in marine space. All right. So let's jump into your book because we're here to talk about your book. And this is an area that you know well. You've written a book before, and I want to get to that later. But why this book now, Moving to Higher Ground? What's it about? And we'll, we can dig in a little bit into it, but I don't want to reveal too much because I want people to go out and buy it. Thank you. So it's not quite a sequel to the first book, High Tide on Main Street, but High Tide on Main Street allowed me to kind of see what writing a book was all about, first time I'd ever done that, and take a lot of science and put it into very plain language. That was nine years ago. With this book, I decided it was time to improve what I had done and have something even more readable to the general public and also to incorporate what's happened in the last decade. And finally, the uh, the, the thing that this book does is spend a lot more time on the, the psychology and the, the inertia, our resistance to believe that sea level is going to rise rather significantly and change the coastline. So that's kind of the focus of the third part of uh, the last third of this book. One of the things that you typically ask is who should read this? And a lot of people just give lip service to that, but you actually have that in the book. You have some bulleted points. You want to make it clear who you think should read this. And could you briefly explain who you want to read it? First of all, it's professionals who have to deal with this information from architects, engineers, attorneys, bankers, people in the financial investment community, town planners more broadly, actually. So anybody whose job should be enhanced or require that they understand what's going to happen to sea level over the next 30 years and longer. That's the first audience that's most important. Two is coastal property owners, whether it be a homeowner, a business owner, or somebody involved with some kind of infrastructure in coastal areas. It could be a refinery. It could be a seaport. It could be a marina. People who uh, have assets in the coastal zone. And then policymakers, people who are writing laws and regulations, but may not be thinking about where is sea level going to be 30 years from now, which is kind of my sweet spot of a target. It's the length of a home mortgage. Most financing is 30 years or longer for infrastructure. And we don't typically think of 30 years out, but 30 years gets us to mid-century. Most of us think we'll be alive for 30 years, and certainly any any children alive today will be should be alive 30 years from now. So it, it's the sweet spot, and we usually tend to think shorter or longer, but I believe 30 years is is the right time frame. And then, so besides the professionals, the uh, policymakers, educators, anybody who's teaching people is kind of my fourth broad category. 
Now, I saw that, and I'm very interested in that. I'm very interested in how people are learning about climate change. And so if educators could benefit from this, how do you see that? And, you know, we're kind of going down a rabbit hole here, but I think of, you know, school-aged children, you know, be relatively young all the way up through high school and college. You know, you hate to think that, oh, sea level rise, well, that's just going to be in that science class. This, well, You're making that argument. This is much bigger than that. And have you heard of any examples of where people are really talking about sea level rise and teaching it in really sort of comprehensive ways? No, in fact, it's almost the opposite. Unfortunately, we're confusing different issues and, and that's why we need to educate ourselves better to educate others better. The, the current concern about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, the carbon dioxide, you know, from burning fossil fuels, which is really important if we're going to slow the warming. But people are often assuming that if we do that well, we won't have sea level rise. So one of the basic messages that I explain, and I put it in very plain language, the physics of this is that even if we eliminated greenhouse gas emissions, even if we got off fossil fuels today, we're still going to have sea level rise. So we need to separate what we think of as climate change. It's three different issues. It's slowing the warming, and that's the fuel issue and how do we make our energy. It's preparing for more extreme events, whether it be wildfires, heat waves, more rainfall, et cetera, the effects that are happening now, and that's being more resilient but sea level is a third aspect. It's neither the energy part, nor is it being resilient to what could happen next year. It's planning for the future when sea level will be higher. That's kind of an important framework if we're going to educate anybody. We've got to educate ourselves. We've got to use terminology that makes sense. And right now, if climate change is the problem, it doesn't allow us to tease apart those three things of being sustainable in terms of our energy production and slowing the warming, being more resilient and preparing in advance for unstoppable sea level rise. I worked quite a bit in Florida, and I'm from Florida originally, so I've had this bias towards sea level rise as that climate impact that I spend a lot of time on. I even call it the charismatic megafauna of climate impacts, and maybe not everyone agrees. <laughs> I, I wonder when I one of the challenges when I give presentations and you give a million presentations is like you have this notion of 2070. This is going to be sea level or 21, whatever, some point in the future. And it's so hard to sort of explain. And I think that's what you're really trying to do with this book is that we how to think about today versus that time frame where, oh, five feet of sea level rise. It's all that in between creating a narrative is just so challenging. Yeah, no, time frame is key. And if people say, well, I don't see the sea level rising. I mean, people come push back sometimes, you know, with that to me. And, and uh, right now, global sea level rise is about a quarter of an inch a year, which is fairly irrelevant. Right. But it's like a drip filling the bucket. And what's happening is year by year and the rate is getting faster, by the way, it used to be a 20th of an inch a year and then a 10th of an inch. Now it's a quarter of an inch a year. And it's just like the pandemic. You have to look at how does the acceleration change the result of incremental change. And that surprises us with the pandemic and will surprise us with sea level. We could get an inch a year within a couple of decades. We could get, therefore, a foot a decade, which imagine that. And the interesting thing about sea level is this isn't just John Englander's theory. This happened in the past. 11,000 years ago, sea level was rising at more than 15 feet a century. Wow. And that's without human influence. So that's why I say... We've really got to get educated, and it does start looking back into geologic history, not thinking that the last 30 years are going to tell us the next 30 years. We have to look at what's happened when the ice sheets have melted before, 
And now that they're melting faster and faster because of us warming the atmosphere. All right. So you've broken the, the book, obviously, in chapters, but you have three different sections. If you could briefly just touch upon those, because we don't want to give too much away, but just so people have a bit. And I think you answered somewhat with the audience and such, but you, you purposely broke it into these three different sections, right? Absolutely. So the, the part one is the science is clear. Sea level will be much higher. Then part two is connecting the dots, planning for a new coastline. And that's where I get into the engineering, the architecture, what it means for real estate, for insurance, public policy uh, and investments. And then part three, rising to the challenge, leadership and vision. And the chapters are seeing the glass half full. Where are their opportunities? Who will lead politicians, professionals or the public? And then the path forward. So in the final section, you have a lot of examples of how you really need to start thinking differently when you're dealing with sea level rise. And I want I want you to tell the, the this little story because it's about the Titanic, and you obviously know what I'm talking mm. about. It's it's about how these researchers did something because they wanted to say that there's just different ways to think about these problems. Could you just briefly explain that example you used in the book? I'll explain it if every one of your listeners will promise to buy the book. No, okay, <laughs> sure. Um, Can't make that promise. No, and, and- And to put it into context, actually, as you know, from reading the book and my first book, that in the first book, I came up and I I speak in terms of metaphors because it's an easy way to understand things that are kind of foreign to us and not in our profession. But I use the Titanic as a metaphor in the last book, High Tide on Main Street, to say, well, if you can see you're about to hit an iceberg, as they did when they got out of the fog bank, you've really got five choices. You can party and say we're doomed, you know, and just uh, pop the champagne corks and who who cares? You can uh, say who's at fault and try and find the guilty party for that you're going to hit an iceberg. You can figure out what you're going to do on the ship to prepare or you can figure out, you know, what's going to happen after impact and uh, and so on. So there's five different ranges of, of how you could think about the fact that you're about to hit an iceberg. But what I came across in researching this new book, Moving to Higher Ground, was an amazing study done a few years ago in London by the uh, Irish company that built the ship and the Royal Institution of Naval Architects, very qualified people to look at this. And they did a, a comprehensive study and said, was there another option for the captain? Was there a way that ship could have been, the Titanic could have been saved? And it turned out after extensive models and analysis that the answer was yes. Instead of Moving hard to port, as was famously depicted in that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, and we all know the story, instead of trying to avoid the iceberg, but hitting it and rupturing the sides and it sinking and putting everybody in the water, if the captain had turned to the right and instead of glancing the iceberg, hit it head on and jammed the bow of the Titanic into the iceberg, the ship would not have sunk or not have sunk for a day or two plenty of time for rescue ships to arrive and put everybody safely on board other ships. And I use that to make the point that we may have to think outside the box with sea level rise. And it may be that the obvious answers of just building higher and higher and seawalls and not letting any property go is like what was done with the Titanic, trying to avoid disaster, but without a real strategic plan. And the point is that sometimes the most creative solution is going to seem outlandish, but really could be salvation. Well, and I think one of the things that was said I thought was really interesting, too, is that they could have just even offloaded people onto the iceberg as they waited. And that that was fascinating. And obviously, how much time did they have and all that? But I thought it was a great anecdote in the use of it as 
thinking differently about these kind of big threats. I thought it was a really cool use in your book. And I think the movie would have been much different. It would have been just Leo DiCaprio running around an iceberg, you know, <laughs> being chased by polar bears or something, but much happier ending. Yeah. Well, this book sounds fantastic. We don't want to give too much away, but what's next for you? Are you obviously still talking about the book? And I, I think as we're opening up a bit, are you doing any sort of bit of a book tour to promote the book? Yes. So far, it's been virtual because of, you know, the, the pandemic and uh, lots of things on uh, Zoom and podcasts and so on. But this summer, I'm, I'm there's going to be a couple of speaking engagements uh, that are in, under discussion. But yes, I'm going to be promoting this book and not just promoting it, conveying the information in the book for many years to come. This is my path. As we said earlier in this in this interview, I really didn't intend to do this, but I happen to have studied ancient sea level back in the early 70s and then the Cousteau discussions and other things. And it just gave me the right background. I've been to Greenland a half dozen times. I've been to Antarctica twice, leading groups and explaining what we can learn from the melting ice. So I'm owned by this topic. I mean, my my main mission for the rest of my life is to help people understand how the water will rise, how we should prepare and adapt for that which is now inevitable. Well, what's kind of, I mean, it's its sobering, but at the same time, maybe a little bit exciting is that the story around sea level rise is, is going to constantly change. We're going to keep learning new things. You're going to be in the thick of that. So you're in the you're in the middle of something special. So, you know, keep educating people about what's about to happen. Well, thanks for helping me do that, Doug. I'll be glad to work with you anytime. You're a great communicator about climate. You've been doing this for years, too. And uh, as you say, the the science and facts about sea level rise are going to change. Whether we get three feet or six feet this century remains to be seen. Depends on how warm the planet is. And the uh, glacial models uh, can't be that precise. So we need to plan for a range of possibilities. But the clarity that sea level rising will continue in a warmer world as the ice sheets melt on Greenland and Antarctica, and that as sea level rises, that the shoreline is going to move inland is both a sobering reality, but like the Titanic example, it can challenge us to think bigger and think futuristically. And I think that's both beneficial to our generation, but more important to our legacy and to those that follow us. Well, John, always a treat chatting with you. I encourage my listeners to go check this book out. I'll have a link in, I'm assuming, Amazon and all the different sort of ways to kind of find the book. Yes. And it's in all formats now. It's in hardcover, softcover, ebook. And audiobook, which I actually narrate myself. Nice. John, thanks for what you're doing and, and good luck. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for what you're doing. Glad to work with you anytime. Hey, Adapters. As part of this special spring book episode, I am talking with Dr. Carolyn Kuski. Carolyn is the executive director at the Warden Risk Management and Decision Processes Center at the University of Pennsylvania. She's here to discuss a new book she co-edited, A Blueprint for Coastal Adaptation. Hey, Carolyn, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me back on. Always a treat to chat with you. You are doing such cool work out there in the adaptation space, so I like highlighting what you're doing. But maybe for people that didn't listen to your previous episodes, could you just give a little bit of background? What is that Wharton Risk Management Center? Yeah, sure. Our center is a research center affiliated with the business school at the University of Pennsylvania, and we do work on a lot of natural hazard topics. And so that increasingly has to do with climate risks. You know, as climate change is changing a whole bunch of weather related disaster events, we look at all aspects of managing those risks from 
um, you know, communicating about them to federal policy, to insurance markets and everything else. <laughs> You've put out this book. What, what's the full title? I just kind of gave the over the main title. Sure. Yeah, it's a blueprint for coastal adaptation, uniting design, economics and policy. And it actually came out of a collaboration between our center and two centers that are housed in design schools, one at Penn and one at MIT. And I just think it's actually kind of rare for a business school and a design school to get together on projects. And yet it seems like adaptation is exactly the topic that really should have both of those schools involved. Right. Kind of excited about it. All right. Well, you jumped right into what inspired you to write that. We'll come back to that really quickly. But I want to give you a chance to to acknowledge the co-editors on the book. Who are they? Yeah, yeah. So I did this with two of my colleagues, Billy Fleming. Um, he's at the McCarg Center at uh, Penn Design, the Weitzman School of Design, and Alan Berger, who was directing the Leventhal Center for Advanced Urbanism at MIT. And this was published by Island Press. And I'm not normally acknowledging the publisher, but Island Press is in the space, right? Oh, yeah. They've done a lot of books, I think, in this in around adaptation. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think that there's probably not that many that have probably done more than just a couple <laughs> around adaptation. So good for Island Press. Uh, nice. That yeah, they're great. <laughs> You started to go down that path on, you know, where the background was to write this book. But again, why the inspiration? Why a book? But then you just you'd mentioned that, OK, these different types of sectors aren't necessarily talking to each other and collaborating. Could you just expand on that? Yeah, sure. So a few years ago, Billy, Alan and I were talking about some of the sort of intractable challenges in adapting to climate change, particularly in our coastal communities. And we felt that bringing to bear the kind of design and planning and vision from a design school with some of the sort of economics and policy and business world from a business school might help make some headway on thinking through those, you know, those issues. So not just what can we do, but how can we actually ensure it gets done is what we're trying to do in this book. And actually, so what we did to start this collaboration was we had a workshop several years ago now that brought together a bunch of the authors and some other people to talk through these. And so many of the presenters at that conference had such good ideas. We thought, hey, this really needs to be put together into a collection. And then it took quite a bit longer after that once we had that idea, but now it's finally here. On that note, as you have these different, and I'm going to ask you how do you recruit your contributors more specifically, but when you have people kind of coming from different organizations, different sectors and such, as editors of the book, adaptation is still this emerging field. And did you have any sort of interesting conversations behind the scene as you were editing? Okay, well, I mean, not that anyone's putting out bad science, but it's just like, all right, we're not quite sure if this is the right kind of messaging out there, or was there a lot of autonomy with the contributors? They're like, okay, they're giving it to us. We're going to do basic editing. I mean, a couple of things. We gave the authors some guidance on things. We wanted this book to be actionable. So we didn't want sort of just theory, but we also didn't want it to be so nuts and bolts that it was sort of disconnected from thinking about this in a more holistic way. So we were trying to hit that sweet spot. But so we did ask all the authors to think about you know, actual implementation details. And if they were working in a particular case to be able to step back and say, well, I might have been looking in this town or, you know, or this municipality, but but what can I say that's broader than that for other places too? So we asked them to kind of do that. And then we also had some themes that had emerged from the conference that we really wanted to make sure went through the book. And one of these was equitable adaptation, right? And how do we think about you know, how can adaptation be a vehicle for also improving well-being? And and what does it mean to engage in equitable adaptation and what would it look like? So we also pushed on all the authors to try to deal with equity a little bit as well. 
All right. So why is that so important? And I guess beyond the obvious humane reasons why equitable adaptation is important, but elaborate. So you, you, you can actually do other things. There's these sort of additional benefits when you're thinking about adaptation that, you know, we might be able to address some longstanding other issues. That's sort of the goal. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to get at those maybe elusive win-wins, right? But also, I think, and, and, and I think actually, this focus on equity and this book coming out right now is pretty timely, given the focus in the, in the current Biden administration. But I think, you know, over the last few years, there's been a building body of evidence that a lot of the ways we approach disaster and sort of that spillover into sort of climate and adaptation then are actually having inequitable impacts. Some of our disaster programs are, you know, intentionally or not tending to go towards more affluent areas. We know that lower income communities, communities of color often are hit disproportionately from these climate related events and so on. And so we wanted to make sure that instead of, you know, exacerbating existing inequalities, we think about adaptation as also sort of improving on those outcomes. So you organize the book into two sections. What are those two sections? Yeah. So the first one is designing for equitable resilience. And that has some case studies from different places around the country. It has a lot of the folks that would come out of a design school. So planners, design, landscape, architecture. We had it open with a chapter um, that was led by Sam Brody to try to put together a kind of framework for thinking about adaptation. And then the second part is adapting public policy and finance. And that gets into the sort of economics and policy issues around sort of how do we pay for this, that type of thing. What are the roles of different sectors? And it gets more into the kind of policy side. Well, we can't cover every contribution. We said we're not going to do that, but can you maybe give a few? And this is not, you're not playing preferences. I know that's not what's happening here, but just to give people a taste of like the specific topics that are written about in here. Let's see. There's just so many. Where to start? You know, we were just talking about the policy and finance section. Unfortunately, that's my background. So I have a tend a bit of a bias there, which is uh, <laughs> admitting I'm admitting I have that. But um, we have Carlos Martin from the Urban Institute did a kind of overview of um, sort of federal public sector sources for how we pay for adaptation. Um, but we also looked at more innovative instruments. So there's something, there's a chapter in there on environmental impact bonds and some examples of, I think Washington DC used them and, and maybe it was New Orleans, but some other places as well on how those could be harnessed. But then beyond just looking at mechanisms, we look at specific challenges too. So there's a chapter by another person at Penn, Alison Lassiter, on coastal drinking water systems and challenges with salinization. As we see sea level rise, a lot of drinking water supplies are actually are going to get at risk for saltwater intrusion. And we have another one by Thomas Rupert talking about this, um, I think, underappreciated challenge of as the sea rises and property gets inundated and we have to retreat, how do we clean up the coast? I mean, what about the structures and the infrastructure that's left there? And how do we make sure we don't have just, you know, a trash of a shoreline, but actually restore those properties so that we can kind of harness the ecological benefits. And then in the first part of the book, there's a number of wonderful case studies, right? There's actually a couple looking at New York City. There's something looking at comparing Miami and Burris. So doing a little bit of an equity angle there. And then across the country as well, we have a case study from California. So that's very high level, but there's there's a lot in there. <laughs> All right. So you mentioned it, but I have a note here, like the, the, the Thomas Rupert one in the title of it. I want to talk a little bit more about that is take out the trash when you leave cleaning up properties abandoned to rising seas by Thomas Rupert. I actually worked a little bit with Thomas when I was in Florida. So I know what he does down there and he's doing some really cool work. And I just want to highlight just to get into some of the details. It's really just the mundaneness of dealing with properties and such and tax codes at the local level. If someone just abandons their property, what literally happens and how does that just sort of 
ricochet up the, the system of property ownership. And he really kind of dug into all those issues. And he focused on Florida, which is actually obviously a very good state to focus on because they're starting to do these things. But what statewide legislation is needed to help with this transition and what local government. So I thought it was a really cool chapter. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think his chapter also is a really nice example of another theme that runs through the book, which is that often we already have the tools we need for the adaptation work that has to be done, but sometimes it's going to take some repurposing or some reimagining, right? Like we might have existing funding vehicles or regulatory approaches, but we have to like tweak and adjust them for this new reality we're dealing with. And I think um, his chapter did a nice job of, of showing that, right? And he also made a good t- point too, is that, you know, some people might say, well, we don't have any precedent for what's about to happen here. And in some ways that's very true, but he used Detroit as an example where a lot of properties were abandoned. So how does the local government there actually deal with that? And, it, you know, these might serve as really good case studies as other communities have to make these sort of tough decisions. So that was really good. Yeah, absolutely. One of your quotes in this book, and this is in the introduction, and I think well, the three of you, I guess, write this up, but it's like, it is time to reimagine coastal communities. And I thought that was a very ambitious kind of statement, and I like it. What, what did you have in mind there? Well, I think one of the things that motivated us is that sort of coming to terms with the idea that we're now in an environment of constant change. And there's not some new standard or new design specification that can, you know, solve coastal adaptation. We're going to have to enter this period of ongoing adjustment. And a lot of our policies and institutions have been built up in a way that assumes a static world. We assume that land's permanent. We assume that risk isn't changing. And so we're going to have to adapt all of these policies and approaches and our way of governing them. And yet at the coast, on top of all that difficulty of managing this constant change, there's this really delicate balance, right, between preserving the values of the shore, which range from, you know, the ecological values of intact coastal systems to the economic values, the amenity values, the quality of life values. And also, how do we harness all those benefits while dealing with growing risk and risk that often materializes itself in disasters that can really create a lot of cost and, you know, disruption? And so how do we get that resilience of of people in place? And I think I think that's a difficult question. And we thought that it required some creative reimagining. And how do you touch upon like my background is more in the natural resource sector. And I think they were some of the really first people thinking about this, even in the early aughts, what adaptation might mean. And then the built environment really sort of ramping up their efforts in the last five years and such. And people might say like something completely rational that seems like the right way for this community to adapt. But if you factor in the sort of the what are the the natural resource outcomes of this? It's maladaptation, right? We don't hear that term enough, but it's out there. We know what that really means. Do when you have a whole book dedicated to, okay, helping coastal communities adapt to climate change, there is that tension because a community could be doing the right thing in so many ways when it comes to adapting, but it really is only factoring in that built environment. Did that kind of come up sort of saying, you know, natural resources really isn't integrated very well? Yeah, I think there's an awareness that we're not protecting our natural resources, our coastal ecosystems as well as we should, and also that we're not harnessing them for the benefits they could provide and the role they play here. And some of that has to do with 
maybe mm, bias in the way they're treated in policy, for example, you know, where we might send federal dollars to build, you know, gray infrastructure through the Corps of Engineers, but we don't send federal dollars to invest in conservation and restoration in the same way, right? So things like that. Yeah, but I think it, it also, I think your comments raise some other, you know, challenges here all these <laughs> I don't mean to be focusing so much on challenges we wanted to focus on solutions but but it's a it's a difficult problem and that is that we can't adapt structure by structure anymore right we have to be thinking more holistically and so I think your point about natural resources is part of getting that bigger picture because without that holistic picture I think there's a greater chance of this maladaptation and I'm not saying this is your book, but I could see a situation where there's a like an adaptation 101 book and you give it to like a, you know, wildlife conservation program at a university. OK, <laughs> what do you think? And they'll have all sorts of issues. And then you give it to an engineer, civil engineering school. And they're like, wow, this makes sense. This, this is great. A lot of good stuff. And I think that's going to be, you know, we're going to need a lot more thinking of like people like you to help kind of maneuver through that because it's 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 not clear how nature is going to kind of factor into all this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that also raises this other component of equity, which, you know, so you were just talking about sort of all the different disciplines that have to be brought to bear here. But another component of that, right, is like whose voices are at the table for making these decisions? And how do we make sure that everyone's voices are at the table? And how are we going to manage, you know, the inevitable conflicts that are going to arise about disagreements about what the future of our communities should look like and over what time period? And I think, you know, it it's the kind of really hard work of engaging across sectors, across disciplines, yeah, into all aspects of a community that would really be needed to kind of get to what you might think of as sort of successful adaptation. Yeah, and I recognize it goes both ways too. Maybe an approach is to set aside lands or restoration of wetlands, and that forces some communities out of an area leading to climate gentrification. It could easily go that direction too. So it's complicated. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but Make a last point on that is we really wanted to make sure that the book had a little, you know, was infused with hope and also a message that it's complicated and it's hard, but we have to start now. You know, institutions and social systems are slow to change. Buildings and infrastructure are long lived. And we know these issues, they're going to be, you know, getting worse over the coming years. So the time to start is now. <laughs> okay. So as much as we want every American to read this, who, who really should read this? Who did, well, who's your target audience? Yeah, I think we wrote it for a couple audiences. We wrote it for local and federal policymakers, maybe, you know, staffers on the Hill thinking about how climate should play into the infrastructure bill, for example, but also folks in municipal governments on the coast who are trying to figure out their best strategy. Um, but we also wrote it for, you know, students and researchers who are trying to make sure that research can be, you know, useful for on the ground change. So I think hopefully it would be a good background for those those folks as well. Well, it must be nice that there's an administration now that you write a book that you know people in that administration will actually want to read this and, and benefit from that. And I hope Island Press has you even send those free books, right, to the perfect, I mean, those are particular policymakers because, you, you know, we want them reading. I know I have some Biden people probably listening to this podcast. And so, yeah, please pick it up. And uh, I I think there's been some discussion, too, of like how much is adaptation being focused on within the Biden administration. And compared to the previous administration, I know it's really good. But at the same time, there is a little bit of that tension between mitigation and adaptation. So, yeah. And we, of course, absolutely need both. 
So <laughs> yeah, right, right. It's always noted. Don't <laughs> stop mitigating, please. Yeah. Okay. So where can someone buy a copy of this book? Yeah. So you can get a copy of it from the Island Press website. You can get it from bookshop.org or Amazon, your favorite online bookseller. Excellent. Well, Carolyn, congratulations on the book. Very important contribution to this wonderful field of adaptation that you and I both work in. But I appreciate you coming on and good luck with the rollout. Hopefully, maybe there'll be even some in-person book signings in the fall or something. (laughs) That would be exciting, right? (laughs) So I'm sure I will have you back on again, but thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It was great talking to you. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to both John Englander and Dr. Carolyn Kuski for coming on the show. You can find links to each of the books in my show notes. The books are so timely and important. Even in these early days of the Biden administration, we're seeing that resilience and adaptation planning isn't necessarily front and center in their overall climate approach. These books offer lots of useful information on why adaptation should be elevated as an urgent issue. If you end up getting the books, email me and let me know what you think. I'm always interested in continuing conversations that started on the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the America Adapts newsletter. We highlight the latest episode and news and stories related to that episode's topic. We also highlight other climate podcasts and share a few adaptation-related goodies. In the show notes, there is a link to subscribe. And here's a call to action. Encourage your friends and colleagues to subscribe. Okay, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work via America Adapts, think about using a podcast. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. So for example, UCLA sponsored me to do several episodes around adaptation in California. At the time, I traveled on location to interview experts they wanted me to include as part of that episode. Usually those episodes have quite a few expert guests. So basically, they're sponsoring an entire episode to share their particular story. I've done various podcasts with groups like World Wildlife Fund, Harvard, University of Florida, and other nonprofits. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners. Okay, so most projects have communications written into them, considering budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or a conference presentation. Many groups work into their communication strategies. So I have been doing these sponsored podcasts remotely for the past year, but I have recently completed my vaccinations and I'm slowly thinking about traveling again, like many of you. Going on location does provide great opportunities to capture unusual conversations that can be part of the episode. So email me at americaadapts at gmail.com to learn more. Some final housekeeping. There is a Facebook page and a Facebook community group. Just search for America Adapts. It'll ask you to join. I usually approve it right away. There's some interesting conversations and people share information from what they're doing, trying to create a community around adaptation. So check that out. And I love hearing from you. This is really important. To me, it really helps influence the direction of the podcast. Just reach out, email me, say who you are. If you work in the space, I'd love to know what you're doing. And if you don't, let me know why you get value out of the podcast. Again, I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. I love hearing from you. Go check out the website, americadapts.org. Don't forget to stick around to the end to hear from the Crazy Town podcast. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time. We are now descending into crazy town. Work has become a luxury for those who still have a job. Protests against police brutality and systemic racism are spreading. Fires spread across three million hectares of Siberia. 
Crazy Town, the pile of garbage that you never want to smell. If we're going to change the direction, the trajectory of this civilization, we're going to have to do things completely opposite of what we've been doing in the past, right? Channel like, your inner George Costanza. Wh- whatever action you thought you were going to take, don't. Do, stop. Do, 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 the, the op- do the opposite. Crazy Town, the podcast that's brave enough to face the truth. Playful enough to laugh about it. And even crazy enough to try something different. Please join us as we explore the mean streets of Crazy Town. Subscribe to Crazy Town on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nailed it.